point is the second coming of Christ is real, it's going to be physical, and it returns. But before we jump into that, uh, we need to take a little culture check. Uh, in our culture, talk about the end times often brings up a certain unfortunate images. Okay, And these are some of the things that some people may think of when we think about end times. Right? Like these guys, the end is nigh, you must be cleansed, the end is nigh. I'm just kind of like that doom and gloom, or maybe this, Homer Simpson with his sandwich board, the end is near. Or this guy who really needs a lot of help and he's got on different shoes. And it's just, a lot of times when you talk about the end times, it brings up just weird images and scary things and doom and gloom. So um, what we're going to try to do is go through these passages that you have there um, on the outline. And just read them and uh, try to hit home on the big idea that Christ's return is uh, will be sudden and unexpected. In Matthew 24, in verses 42 and 44, it says, Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be what? Just be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Alright, Matthew twenty-five, thirteen. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Mark thirteen, thirty-two and thirty-three. But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. Matthew twenty-five, fifty or twenty-four fifty. The master of that servant will come on a day. When he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. Mark thirteen thirty four 34-37, this is a great picture that Jesus gives. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Very interesting. See, see this constant theme of Jesus that we should watch. All right. Even more scriptures. Luke twelve forty. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. First Corinthians sixteen twenty two. O Lord, come. Philippians three twenty. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For you, and this is First Thessalonians five two. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How many of you have seen that seventies Christian film, Thief in the Night? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, I remember watching. Well, yeah, I, I think that that most Christians, you know, film and movies and often music of until maybe a few years ago could kind of carry that label like it's not the best quality. But I remember watching that as a child of the 80s because my dad would show it to their youth group when he was a youth minister from like 75 through 81. And I was mortified, like as an eight-year-old kid sitting there and a guy's pushing the lawnmower and then the second... It, the camera turns and comes back and the lawnmower's there and it's running and no one else is there. And then the mark of the beast and the Antichrist when they have the kid, you know, and they're putting the kid on trial with the guillotine there and the kid's holding an umbrella, right? And then the, the kid, they put the kid down for the 
below the guillotine. And then the father says, stay son, stay strong, my son. And then the next thing you, you see the guillotine go and then the, the camera shows a, a balloon floating up. I mean, I was like scarringly horrified as a kid growing up. So um, that phrase right there, like a thief in the night, you don't expect a thief that, that the whole point of being is being unexpected and being surprised. Let's look at some more. Titus chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Training us to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 25. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's an interesting verse. As you see it drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. Not just chronologically, but by the signs of the times. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is what? At hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and all the works that are upon it will be burned up. Revelation 1.3, the time is near. Revelation 22.7, behold, I am coming when? Soon. Revelation 22.12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. That's a scary verse, right? It had not to do... Uh, to, to repay, tit, tit for tat. In other words, if it were not for grace, then that would mean the doom of doom of everyone. Uh, 22.12, Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. All right. And that was a boatload of scripture. Okay, we just kind of flew through that. Um, but what is it, what would you say maybe would be the theme of these verses? And you can say this many different ways. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. Um, and you can say this many ways. I just put down here: Jesus's return is return is imminent. It's that's what the scriptures say. He could return at any time. Okay. So here's a question for kind of an apologetic deal. If you talk to someone who doesn't believe the Bible, they may say this. Since it's been almost 2,000 years, could Jesus have been mistaken about his quote-unquote imminent return? Now think about it. We just read verses that said things are like the judge is at the door. You know, People sometimes will push against you and say, well, isn't Jesus ever coming back? I know that World News Daily had an article maybe about six months ago or so that says, will Jesus ever return? What may be a response that we could give to someone who presses you on this question? Okay. Okay. All right. So God's time is not our time. All right. Good. What else? Yeah. I don't have something to that, but about um, Jesus' return being imminent. Um, what about the verse where it says that the sun will darken and the moon mm-hmm. will turn to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord? So wouldn't that have to happen before? We'll get to that in just a sec. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Good. And uh, actually, if you guys um, don't have it yet, Wayne Grudem has a, this big, massive, easy-to-navigate uh, systematic theology book, and he goes through all of those things. And we'll, we're going to try to touch on some of them. But, uh, but good, good question. 
Any 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 other response that we could come back? Because honestly, I guess you could just say first you got to establish to that person that the Bible is God's word and it's true. Sometimes you can't mm-hmm. there, <laughs> but if you can start there with them, right, you could say He says He's coming back. Mm-hmm. You just don't know the day or hour. Okay. Day, Very good. Yeah, okay. God's not by time. Okay. We are. Yeah. Good. I got a crazy one for you. Okay. Throw it out. I should share it or not. I'm going to get so crazy when I say this. We are in there. The Jews are going to be scattered all over the earth and going to be persecuted and killed. And then they're going to come back and claim Israel as the Holy Land again. And that's happened in 1948. Mm-hmm. And they said that the, the coming of Christ, I mean, this is what I read years ago. Becoming like a couple generations after that, 1948, with the Jews. Till this generation pass, yeah. Matthew Matthew 24. And then yeah. what happened with the Jews? They were all over. They were getting killed, and they went to find God comes on back in Israel. Mm-hmm. That's their home state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll 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 try to try to touch on that in, in Matthew 24. It's actually that's kind of like the, I guess the starting point of of what we're we're talking about tonight, Matthew 24. But that actually that that phrase. Um, people have translated that. Actually, when when we come to uh, to Jerusalem here in just a second, if I forget, let's go into that because I think it'll it'll definitely tie in into that. Just the different ways that people have interpreted that. Um, a, a liberal, all right, and we're not talking about necessarily political liberal, someone who would deny the Bible. They would say, and this has been in liberal theology for for a long time. They say that Jesus was wrong. All right. And once again, if you're, if you're liberal in theology, Jesus is not necessarily a savior. He's a good moral figure. He's a, he's a great moral teacher. His ethics are impeccable, but it doesn't mean that he is God in the flesh. So here's, um, how should we respond to the liberal claim that Jesus was mistaken? I think what you said, Sue, and what you guys referenced is that God's time is not our time. Um, here's, here's a statement by George Eldon Ladd, a great, great, great Christian, um, of many years ago. And he said this. The prophets were little interested in chronology. And by the way, this is just for us. And y'all know on Wednesday night we get a little bit deeper than we do on other times. I don't expect like us to carry around the copy of this and be like, here's my response or read it to them. But this is just for your edification, all right? Uh, the prophets were little interested in chronology. And the future was always viewed as imminent. The Old Testament prophets blended the near and the distant perspectives so as to form a single canvas. Biblical prophecy is not primarily three-dimensional, but two. It has height and breadth, but is little concerned about depth, depth, i.e., the chronology of future events. The distant is viewed through the transparency of the immediate. It is true that the early church lived in the inexpectancy of the return of the Lord, and it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expectancy of the end. Very, very interesting statement. So we're going to now, what you mentioned a moment ago, we're going to go through the signs that the Bible says precede the coming of Christ. Okay, Number one, is that the preaching of the gospel must be to all nations. Mark 13.10 and Matthew 24.14, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Alright, so here's the question. Has the gospel been preached to all nations? Here's what the Apostle Paul said in the first century. 
And Colossians chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Okay, so the Apostle Paul said for him that the gospel had been preached to the whole world. Colossians 1.23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all what? Under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So here's, here's the question for us. Was Paul speaking about all of the earth hearing in a representative sense, or in a holistic sense, or in a total sense? Remember in Acts chapter 2 when Pentecost came and it says in Jerusalem there was there were people from every right nation and so forth? Do, do you think that within the context it was speaking of like let's say the Native Americans? Or someone from Australia? See when Paul's speaking here from, from what we know he's speaking about the whole Roman world, right? The whole known world. If we went... Back about 300 years before Christ, Alexander the Great went to the edge of India, right? And he conquered, you know, to in that area, but he wept because there were no worlds left to conquer. Now, were there people living beyond India? Absolutely. You know, were the Japanese islands and so forth, were they populated? Absolutely. But European culture didn't know they hadn't pushed out to that point. So when we see Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 28 to take the gospel to all the nations, he literally means all the nations, not just to the known world. Okay, because sometimes when people read this, um, it's, it, it can be very, very confusing. Because if Paul's talking about all the nations in a total sense, then it wouldn't really make sense for Jesus to tell us to take the gospel to all nations if the gospel had already been taken to all nations. Are there any questions on that? Because because usually when when that comes up when they because people say today you know like in our missions services well we preach the gospel to all nations and then the end will come somebody says well what about Paul and Colossians didn't he say but we he's speaking in terms of of, of the Roman world the known the known world um, we'll just pass over over that statement but number two um, I got a quick question on that though. yeah you know as Baptists we say we got it figured out and there's that twenty forty window or whatever it's called. You know, that Amazon reach. Mm-hmm. The, I think 1040 so, window, yeah. I mean, how does that fit there? Do we think we have to actually hit every single one of them? Or, you know what? Um, I know that when it says to all all the nations, then, then the end will come. This is why I think that we can say that the return of Christ is imminent. Uh, after all, all of these things that we can go through, that may be happening right now. I know with Southern Baptist we've got over 5,000 missionaries, but there's a lot of godly missionaries from independent groups, you know, from you know, Assemblies of God, whatever. Just they're preaching the gospel. We, we may have a disagreement over some things, but they, they're, they're preaching the gospel. That may be penetrating, or it could be that 10 years ago someone went on a mission trip and they handed a track in a local language to someone in India, and that guy read it and got saved, and he actually went back to his tribe that nobody knows that, but he was able to go there and preach the gospel. And we don't even know about it. Like, we think that we, we have these unreached people groups and we know who they are, but we don't actually totally know. Because it could be that God has done a work, like, let's just put this in, and y'all know where I'm going with this. 
like if someone from from a very very rural village that has no Christian witness, that person goes to an, a university in India, and they go there and they hear the gospel on campus. Then they're able to go back outside of any Western involvement without Southern Baptist or anything like that. So it very well could be that the gospel is filtering through those nations, and that we're just behind in our statistics. Yeah. Get all the people satellite dishes anywhere in the world. Right. So it's, it, it could. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's why that's right. Mm-hmm. I agree. The world's become so small. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's the thing, too. I, I know that the Bible says, like in, in the Great Commission, in the Greek, it's panta. Uh, ta ethne to all the ethnicities, all the people groups. Now, how God defines a people group, I don't exactly know. Because sometimes, like when you, you get into all these little differences, like these people live on the other side of the river, and like in the Old Testament, you had the uh, the, the one Hebrew tribe that would pronounce it Sibboleth, and the other one couldn't say it correctly, and they would say Shibboleth. And they were still, and that's the way they knew who to kill, right? They, they took control of the fords of the river, and the, the enemy was, was fleeing. They were the same ethnicity, but they used that to distinguish. So, who's a different ethnicity? I don't know. I don't know how God defines that. So, I mean, it very well could be that the gospel has gotten further than we, we think it has. But, um, but here's, here's a few verses. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but this is the beginning of birth pangs. Mark thirteen nineteen and 20. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Right. So when we hear rumors of war, which my take from what they say and what walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it seems like the Iranians would not mind war at all. Okay? It just seems like it's the guy walking down the street saying, go ahead, go ahead, say something about my mom. You know, they just, they want to fight. And when you think about all of the things and all the factors internationally, economically, that's tied in that region, things can get pretty rough very quick. But when I hear about that, the Bible says, do not be alarmed. And since it's Jesus who's saying, do not be alarmed, I shouldn't be Alarmed. I should be concerned and try to be involved and be a peacemaker, but it doesn't mean that I have to freak out. So this um, comes to, I think what you referenced, John, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. From 66 to 70 AD, the Jews revolted against Rome, and Titus brought his legions against Jerusalem and absolutely destroyed the city. And they said to that point, it was the largest scale destruction that they had um, in recorded history. And here's what Josephus says about it. He says, now the number of those that were carried captive during the whole war, war, the whole war was collected to be 97,000, as was the number of those that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. 
the greater part of whom were indeed of the same union with the citizens of Jerusalem, but not belonging to the city itself, for they were come up from all the country to the feast of unleavened bread, and were on a sudden shut up by an army, which at the very first occasioned so great a traitness among them that there came a pestilential destruction upon them, and soon afterwards such a famine as destroyed them more suddenly. Um, If you ever get a chance, you can Google this or pick up a copy from the library. When Josephus describes the destruction in Jerusalem, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Over a million Jews, just in Jerusalem, okay? That's not counting all of the areas that we find mentioned in the Bible that, that the Romans pillaged and slaughtered up until they pushed them into Jerusalem. Over a million people died. They said there were so many bodies being thrown out over the walls that even Titus, who was a pagan Roman, said to his leaders and his men, before God, this is not my doing. This was not my intention. It was that bad. There was plagues inside the city. There was also Jews killing Jews inside the city. You had robbers. You had different factions that were fighting. It was absolutely horrific. But... If we had been a Christian in 66 AD, we would have remembered something. This is so key. Luke 21, 20. This is Jesus. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by what? Then know that its desolation has come near. Now notice what Jesus told him to do. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country Enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And then Jesus says over in verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. See, do you know what historians tell us that that sect of Jews that was taught that they claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Guess what they did when the Romans were about to lay siege to Jerusalem? All of them left. Okay. Now, when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that all of these things will happen in this generation, there's a debate among scholars of whether Jesus was speaking about generation in the sense of this generation that extends based upon the ethnicity of Jews. In other words, could Jesus be saying that all of these things will not outlast the existence of the Jewish people? In other words, you're not going to be able to wipe out the Jews. Or did Jesus mean in this specific time frame? Remember when Jesus pointed to uh, the temple and said that one of these stones will not be left on top of another, they'll be all be torn down. Well, when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem... Uh, Titus gave the order not to harm the temple. His soldiers disobeyed. They burned it. Okay? Remember how much gold was in the temple? When the gold began to melt, it melted down onto the streets, and the Romans actually dug up the very stones on the street to try to get the gold that had melted. Okay? So in some sense, we can say that what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, at least according to the first century Christians, they thought that that applied to them. Okay? Now, we're saying that all of Matthew 24 is fulfilled then. I don't believe that, all right? Because here's the thing. That's the only reference point that we have to interpret Matthew 24. And we know up to that point, it was, it was the worst slaughter that had happened. So, 
We're, we're not saying that all of that was fulfilled in Matthew 24, but that could have been an illustration of a greater thing that would happen. What we do know is that the Christians listening to what Jesus said actually saved him from extinction. And there are some scholars who believe that if Jesus had not told them that, when you see it surrounded by armies, flee, that it could have been that Christianity would have been wiped out with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are no more, I mean, they were wiped out then. Just, or the Sadducees, gone. That was it. They're gone. The Sadducees, after that time, nobody finds any reference of them. And it very well could have been, once again, God is sovereign, that if they had not left, they would have been annihilated as well. But um, There's going to be false prophets working signs and wonders. Uh, Mark thirteen twenty two: false Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So in these verses, we've got false prophets and ultra-deceptive signs and wonders. Now think about this. These things are going to be so deceptive. Notice it says false Christs. Not even necessarily the Antichrist, but the false Christs are going to be so slick and deceptive that even the ones who are saved could be deceived if that were possible. Any comments on this? I don't know about y'all, but I think that's pretty strong. They will show signs and wonders to lead astray, if it were possible, the people who have the very Holy Spirit of God living in them. That is, that's heavy-duty stuff. Well, I do know that um, a lot of times when you share this subject, you know how controversial it can get. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people with that say, well, you know, what's it matter? You mm-hmm. know, we're going to be out of here in words, it doesn't matter. But, say we're not. Right. I mean, that right there could be scary. You, you have to know the Lord. Mm-hmm. Because it says you could be led astray. Right. Right. Happens to be here. Right. So right. I don't think it, you should have the real attitude like I have nothing to worry about. I'm out here. You know, prepare for the worst, and then if you're out here, then great. Right. But yeah, I mean, that seems like. Look, you look what's going on in the world today, in this country today. Everybody's being led astray. Mm. I mean, right. I mean, everybody's into this Marxism type mentality, theology. Everybody's into half our country. You know what I'm saying? We're split. We've got everybody's polarized and. And everybody's, you know, following things that really aren't biblical to Christ, you know. Mm-hmm. Not following what to get away from Christianity. Yeah, following all these weird, you know, environmentalists and, you know, following all these you know, different things. Up, you know, yeah. uh, my sister, she's like um, somebody who's, you know, not, not, she's not an environmentalist, but she's a humanist. Mm-hmm. You know, and all these different kind of religions that are popping up here. Yeah. So we talking, yeah. It's, it's, it's happening now. I mean, even Jews, they're not, they're not religious anymore. They're very secular. And I can't remember where I read this statistic. And once again, statistics are statistics. But um, it said that that 90% of Israel uh, leans atheistic, agnostic. It's um, very, very interesting. I mean, you guys see it, right? I mean, you can, you can if you're a good salesman today, and you you have um, people who who don't know, you can. You can deceive them. Everybody's getting brainwashed, you know, and indoctrinated with all this stuff. And now it's been going on since, really, it's been going on since the turn of the century. But since after World War II, it's really picked up. And it's, it, you can see this whole generations now. It's really going to the academia, to the media, mm-hmm. the TV. Um, uh, they're into the, the town halls, into, into, into the churches with this, this doctrination. Getting, really getting away from Jesus and getting away from, from Christianity. Yeah, yeah. They, I think that, you know, to kind of mix things up a little bit, make it sound, you know, mm-hmm. which I think is even more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, 
And we're going through these, you know, like we're talking, these things that, that will precede what Jesus said precedes his coming. And this may be what you were um, referencing earlier, uh, Mark 13, 24 and 25. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Okay, here's the thing. What we've talked about so far, we can say that there have been wars and rumors of wars, right? We can say that there have been famines. We can say that, at least we know of yet, we don't think the gospel has been preached to all the nations, but it, it could be pretty close now. And we know that it is very close um, we know that there have been destruction, large scale, large scale, like Jesus is talking about. We don't know if that was just Matthew 24. Now, there are scholars, and they know, right? You write a book on it, you're an expert on it. So we just, you know, if you write a book on it, you got it. You know, just write your own Bible. But this is one that kind of stands out, and some scholars will say, well, you know, that, that may be metaphorical. I, it, it just, it kind of has a ring to it. Like if you just come to the Bible and you read it for that natural reading, um, what would you come away with? That, it, that, it, that it's going to happen. And here's something too. Unless you love, unless you read the one. <laughs> well, yeah. Once again, if you write a book, then that's all that all that needs to be said on that subject. But here, here's some a question I think we should give to people that try to take these really, really, uh, I guess, we, guess we could say grandiose verses, and they try to say what's simply metaphorical. Say, well, which part is metaphor? Because right after you have the heavens shaken, the stars falling, and all of these things, the moon will not give its light. Next verse, what, what do we have? Son of man coming. Second coming of Christ. Return of Jesus. So, so what is metaphor? And if the return of Christ in this verse is simply a metaphor, that means he's not really coming back. It means that God may just give more grace in the future or something like that. Well, I don't get why they don't get something like that could happen when he did the miracles in the Old Testament. I mean, right, right. And you know, why the thing, would you say it's just hypothetical or whatever? Yeah, and exactly. And the thing for us, the reason why we believe in miracles ultimately is because of the resurrection, right? There is no greater miracle than you can do to have a dead man three days, dead, clinical, to the point of almost stinking, come back from the dead. That's the ultimate miracle. So if we can believe that the data supports that, then this is, this, this is no, this is no problem. Um, almost through here, the coming of man, of the man of sin and the rebellion. So antichrists. This is speaking of, um, antichrists have been identified in the past. Nero. People have said Nero. Uh, Domitian. Diocletian. These Roman tyrants. Um, a lot of the reformers said the Pope. Or the, the, the papacy was, um, was the antichrist. Because the Pope was slaughtering people uh, who would actually print the Bible. In fact, in Europe, if you were a printer, that were you printing either the Bible or gospel tracts, they would find you and they would put you on your printing press, either tie you there and burn you onto your printing press, and you would go up together. Um, yeah, Adolf Hitler. These are just a few. Mikhail Gorbachev. You guys remember his birthmark? What? That was the mark of the beast. And oh my goodness, uh, what, what are some others that you guys have heard? Uh, I heard the UN possibly could not be. Maybe it's not a single person. It could be, uh, I just heard that recently, I read that somewhere. 
Yeah, I, think they yeah. I mean, we, we know that the Antichrist is going to have control of the whole world. Yes. Okay? And I don't, I don't know what y'all think, I, how the U.S. is going to fit into that, whether we're a third world nation, whether we don't matter, but I, I just, I don't know. Something's going to have to happen, because I know a lot of people are very, you know, you got your gun-clinging rednecks that they may not love Jesus, but boy, they don't like anything that's not American. And, and, and the Antichrist will go against everything that we find in the Constitution in terms of free, freedom and, and whatnot. But anybody know of any other... Uh, Popular figures. I know people said Ronald Reagan because each one in middle, first, and last name had six letters, 666, and just, I mean, crazy, bizarre, bizarre stuff. But I put this in here, um, a question. How could becoming obsessed with identifying the Antichrist damage our walk with Christ? Because I've talked to some Christians before, and they are they have their their radar wide open for trying to identify which group and which person would people that could be the antichrist that could be antichrist so it's almost like all of their spiritual strength is absorbed in trying to identify well if obama is the antichrist the antichrist got dominated in the debate last week so i don't know if i find that in scripture anywhere no, no matter if you're republican democrat or independent but what were you saying john I'm saying people are so focused on finding the Antichrist, what you, what, you, what you don't know, but we do know about Christ. So we wind up, you wind up focusing on that, you know, inside of what really is real, and you know that's real, mm-hmm. because, you know, the Bible has never let us down. You look at the Old Testament. All the prophecies of the Old Testament have been come to pass, you know? I mean, I don't know any more proof you would need, you know, besides, you know, I didn't have the New Testament, Christ wrote miracles of things that he, he has done. Right. But to me, that book is, is, is flawless, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's a good point. When you when you study the original, it allows you to be able to recognize the counterfeit. I see how the Jews are right thinking Isaiah. They even reject Isaiah. If you find an answer to that, please let me know. Yeah. I, I, and they and they well, I, I've heard different things. Like some, you know, they they learn Hebrew, but some people say they study the Old Testament. Sometimes I've heard people say that they kind of bypass those uncomfortable passages. Like Psalm 22 or Isaiah chapter 53 that kind of really say that the Messiah is going to do these things that really looks like what Jesus did. But, um, I did. Uh, the, sunny, the, the coming of the Son of Man. We're just going to skip uh, over this. The verses um, in second. That's actually there on your on your on your outline. Um, the Antichrist. Actually, let's let's go through Second uh, Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, really quick, and then we're going to jump to the questions. This is a very, very, very succinct picture of the Antichrist and what he's going to do. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Okay? Uh, and the son of, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And let's stop right here. Some people think that this is a reference to um, him coming into the holies of hol- holy of holies in the temple and saying that I am God in the flesh. We know that the temple right now is not there; that the dome of the rock is there. So. If that's what it's speaking of, there's going to have to be an Israeli pilot whose missile is misguided that takes out the dome of the rock and Israel takes over. I mean, I don't know what's going to have to happen or if that's exactly what that means. Um, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of whom? Yeah. Will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish. Now check this out. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What this is saying here, that the Antichrist is not so much a deceiver as he is the desire of those who want to be deceived. You see, if I reject the truth, I'm putting myself in the category of having to accept a lie, right? There's no, there's no middle ground there. If a person rejects Christ, no matter if they hold to Buddhism, if they hold to Islam, if they hold to, you know, some sort of secular humanism or scientism, they are holding to a lie. So that's why when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it takes on such much, uh, so much more meaning when we contrast this with the one who's going to be sent. Because sometimes people think the Antichrist is going to come and the whole world is just trying to do good and find truth and he's going to be the one to sway him. Not according to this verse. He's going to do some deceptive signs, but it's only going to be that the people fall for it because they already refuse to love the truth. Yeah, and what she's talking about, you know, a couple hundred years before Christ, the Syrians, they took over and he actually um, brought a pig into the temple and he, and, he, and he sacrificed a pig, which for the, the Jews, that, that was the greatest sacrilege. And so the story goes with the, um, the Hasmonean revolt as the old priest, Matthias, um, he, pull, he pulled out a sword. And when um, this is not when Antiochus Epiphanes was there, obviously, but when one of his representatives came, um, he said, who is going to be the first one to sacrifice? And he had a pig there. And they got this one Jewish traitor to come up. And he had the, the, the old priest, Matthias, and he said, you know, are you going to, to officiate this? And Matthias pulled out a sword and killed the traitor. And then he killed the Syrian representative. And that started the revolt. His son, Judas, the Maccabees, if you ever pick up a Roman Catholic Bible, it has uh, the book of Maccabees, first and second. It's not scripture, but boy, it's interesting reading about the Jewish revolt. Um, that happened, you know, a couple hundred years, uh, or about 150 years before Christ, and that kind of set up the Romans coming in because the Romans are the ones who helped. Jews were killed during that time, right? Yes, yes, but they actually won. They won against the Syrians. I think more than ever, though, it was the Beta actually, wasn't it? I don't. I really don't know. Um, I thought that's what I heard. That was 16. Yeah, I thought it was the most Jews that I've ever been. Yeah. I know one of my New Testament profs said that per per capita in terms like a percentage kill ratio that 70 AD was the worst that the Jewish people had ever. Because you think about world population 2,000 years ago, to have a million people die in one city, uh, at least from what we know, Josephus's number, 1,100,000 people in Jerusalem. Once again, that's just Jerusalem. That That's like, I mean, how do you even... Um, don't you think, I guess, uh, do you believe that the Jews have a, still have a significant role in, in, in Christ's coming? Because it just seems like, like they, they yeah. for thousand, 2,000 years they've been trying to destroy this, this nation and they're still, they're still thriving. I mean, mm-hmm. still, this little country surrounded by millions and millions right. of people that hate them and, and it's right. still, you know, they, they, they you know, well, the worst they won. Mm-hmm. As soon as they became a nation in 1948, they were attacked by all, you know, most sides, millions. 
Yeah, you're right. And that's actually the, the next point. What actually we're, let's knock this out. And then we've got some good questions, um, that actually applies this that we'll have to deal with next week. But that's an excellent point, John. Um, the salvation of Israel. So Jesus has said this is going to be something that comes before, um, his return. Paul talks about the fact that many Jews have not trusted in Christ, but he says that sometime in the future, a large number would be saved. Okay? And this is Romans 11, 12. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What Paul's saying here is that the Jews rejected Jesus. That opened the door, obviously, for the Gentiles to come and be engrafted into um, Christ. Romans chapter 11, verses 25, 26. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. What's the mystery? Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. This is Paul in Romans chapter 11, and he uses the metaphor of Israel as a tree, and the Gentiles like an apple tree. I've been told, I've never owned an apple tree, or but they say that you can engraft certain branches in a certain type of apple tree, and that that branch will produce fruit from the main trunk. So he said that they have been engrafted, the Gentiles, but there's going to be that day in the future, we don't know exactly how or when, but that God's going to do a sovereign work in that Whatever that phrase means, all Israel will be saved. There's, and there's some people actually believe, especially if you believe that Jesus is gonna, the rapture is gonna come, then the seven year tribulation, then the return of Christ, that most, if not all, of the people who are saved in the great tribulation will be Jews. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to hold to that, but I do know that, and I believe, you know, John, I don't know what, Maybe everybody else says, I do believe that God still has a place for ethnic Israel um, in the future. I don't think that the church has replaced. I think that we have been um, included into God's plan. But our including, being included in God's plan doesn't necessarily push them out of it. And I think that Genesis uh, 15, I believe, that those who curse you will be cursed, those who bless you will be blessed, still applies today. And uh, the best statement I've ever heard about that illustrates that is when uh, Corey Ten Boom, um, the one who had the hiding place where they would hide Jews there in Holland, she said her, her father saw the Germans putting the Jews on this truck and he began to cry. You know, she tried to comfort him and she said, God will take care of his people. And he says, I'm not, I'm not crying for the Jews. He says, I'm crying for the Germans because they have touched the apple of God's eye.